Well, good morning. How is everyone? I'm not convinced. How is everyone? All right. Good, good. It's about to be college football season, and soon after that, college basketball season, which is probably more important here in North Carolina. So I know that you all can get excited, because I hear it every year, all through the fall and the winter. If you have a Bible with you this morning, would you open it to the book of Galatians? The book of Galatians. If you're not sure where that's at, go to the table of contents or just go to the end of the Bible and start flipping back and you'll make it pretty soon. If you start at the beginning and flip forward, it'll take you a little while longer. Before we get started this morning, let me say thank you. Thank you to your pastor and your elders for their support and their generosity over these months that we have met here. But also thank you to you as a church. You have been a blessing to us. You have served us in ways that perhaps some of you don't even know. Obviously, you know that uh, you've let us use your facility, and we are very grateful for that. But there are many, many other ways that many of you uh, and your church body as a whole have been a blessing to us, praying for us, serving us, caring for us, and we don't take that lightly. We're very grateful to have brothers and sisters in Christ who have come alongside of us. And uh, we counted a blessing to count you among them. So, Galatians chapter 1, verses 1 through 5. Let's read it together. Paul, an apostle, sent not from men, nor by a man, but by Jesus Christ, and God the Father who raised him from the dead, and all the brothers and sisters with me. To the churches in Galatia, Grace and peace to you from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ, who gave himself for our sins to rescue us from the present evil age according to the will of our God and Father, to whom be glory forever and ever. Amen. That's exactly what I was going to say. Amen. So, I didn't know till this morning that uh, Pastor Jared was in California this morning, and uh, I'm actually from California. That's where I was born and raised, there in the Central Valley for the most part. If you don't know what the Central Valley is, just think Oklahoma, stuck in the middle of California. That's where I'm from. The parts that you see on television, we made fun of where I was from, and they made fun of us back. And so that's the part of California that I come, the Dust Bowl, the people that came out during the Great Depression. Those are my people. So obviously, I didn't get beamed up to North Carolina. I hope you know that. I made my way. In fact, I've driven across the country and flown across the country more than a half a dozen times in my life. I've driven across the country, I think, three and a half full times, three, three there and backs, and then one just there. And I've flown across the country several times as well, And they're different experiences. Obviously, it's a long drive. It's 2,600 and some odd miles from here to where I'm from in California. It's a long drive. It's a long flight as well, but obviously much shorter. And in doing this, you notice some things differently about our country. So I thought I'd bring a few of those to your attention this morning as we get started looking into God's Word. When you're flying, you can see the contours 
of our country. You can see how the landscape changes pretty easily from 30,000 feet up, particularly if there's not clouds. You can see the great forest that is basically this whole side of the United States, east of the Mississippi River, turn into more sporadic trees and farms, which then makes its way into vast deserts and mountains, depending on what part of the United States you're in, and then, of course, into California. So you can see the contours of the country changing as you fly. But when you drive, you can actually feel the contours of the country changing. You can feel what it feels like to go from a humid climate to a dry climate. Maybe, Meredith, maybe you understand what this is like, right? So the idea that we would be meeting this morning in a church called Green Pines Baptist Church, if you're from Arizona, you would never meet in a church called Green Pines. It would probably be more like Face of the Moon Baptist Church because that's what most of Arizona looks like. So you can feel the contours as you drive. You can see the mighty Mississippi River as you fly over it, and it looks impressive. But when you drive over it, it looks far more impressive. It's amazing to drive over a mile and a half or two miles of river with flowing water, an enormous amount of water flowing down that river. You can see from the air the scale of the Grand Canyon, and it's amazing. But it's nothing like standing on the edge of the South Rim and looking over the Grand Canyon and taking in what an enormous natural wonder this is. You see things differently when you fly and when you drive. And when you read Scripture, both are helpful, flyovers. When you read whole books of the Bible at a time, you can kind of see the contours as it changes, the arguments as the authors of Scripture make them, particularly in the Old Testament where the books are more narrative and long-flowing stories that show us the, the arc of God's plan for the world and humanity. But sometimes it's good to slow down, to drive or maybe even bike or walk through Scripture and feel the contours. That's what I want us to do this morning. That's why I didn't pick a long passage. I want us to just take three verses and focus in on them. Verses 3, 4, and 5. This is an introduction to the book of Galatians, this letter. In fact, uh, this letter is pretty um, hot, so to speak. This is, Paul, well, this is one of Paul's um, most pained letters that he writes to these churches in Galatia. Because you'll find out later, if you were to read on, that most of these people have begun to turn away from the gospel soon in their Christian life. And Paul, in an urgent kind of crisis, emergency way, is saying, stop. But it doesn't start with stop. He starts with Jesus. It's as if he wants them to slow down and look closely at the gospel that they first received. Look closely at God's plan for them, for the world. Look closely at what Jesus had done on their behalf and its sufficiency for everything that they need. So here's what I want us to do. I want us to slow down for just a few minutes this morning. I know this is hard for us. 
in an age of screens, one there and one there and probably one in our pocket and three at home and speed limits that just mean don't go more than five to ten miles per hour over it. Sorry. (laughs) But it's good for us to slow down. Let me ask you a question. When was the last time you took your Bible and you sat on your porch and you just read a few verses of Scripture and you just took the next hour and you just let it wash over you? You just thought about it. You didn't read it real quick in the morning and then move on and grab your cup of coffee and get in your car and jam off to work. You didn't read a few verses because you felt bad if you didn't and then grab the kids and put them in the car and then take them to school and then off to the rest of your day. When was the last time that you just took an hour, sat with an open Bible and no screen, read a portion of Scripture, and then just let it wash over you over and over and over again? Obviously, we won't have time to do that this morning, or we'd be here till 2, and you guys wouldn't like me anymore, and I like being liked, so... We will let it wash over us for a few minutes. I want to bring out seven aspects of this text. I want us to look closely. Slow down as we look. Look back at verse 3. Grace and peace to you from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ, who gave himself for our sins to rescue us from the present evil age according to the will of our God and Father, to whom be glory forever and ever. Amen. Seven observations about Jesus from this text. First, Jesus' death on the cross was voluntary. Look back with me at verse 4 and you'll see this. It starts in verse 3, Grace and peace to you from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. We'll get back there. Verse 4 who gave himself. Obviously, it's an introduction to a letter, so sometimes we just blow by it, just like we blow by a greeting, right? It just comes instinctually. Hey, how you doing? I'm doing great. Okay, hey, have a great day. Boom, we just blow by it. Don't miss this. Who gave himself. Nobody took Jesus' life. Jesus gave his life for you and for this world. He gave himself. Some months ago, I came across a list of extravagant gifts. Maybe you've received an extravagant gift one time. My wife and I uh, received about a $25,000 gift some years ago. An extravagant gift. Something that we could have never imagined. Let me just share with you a few of these extravagant gifts that I came across. Someone gave a gift of a $19,000 pair of gold shoelaces to somebody else. I don't care that much about shoelaces. I'd probably take them to the pawn shop and get as much as I could if someone gave me gold shoelaces. But $19,000, that's a pretty extravagant gift, right? How about this? $39,000 alligator skin backpack. My son and daughter will never be getting that for back to school. How about this? 
a $100,000 shaving razor with sapphire blades. My wife complains about 18 bucks for four Gillettes at Target. <laughs> or perhaps my favorite, a $3.2 million dog collar. These are extravagant gifts, right? We would all admit these are extravagant gifts. But they're not as extravagant as Jesus giving himself. I want you to just hear the phrase that the Bible uses one more time. Who gave himself. He did not just give himself physically. He gave himself spiritually, emotionally, relationally, being abandoned by everyone. He gave everything. He gave his total self for a time abandoned by his father. This was an extravagant gift, and he did it voluntarily. Nobody took his life. He gave it. Secondly, Jesus' death on the cross was not only voluntary, but it was in our place. Look at the phrase right after gave himself. Who gave himself for our sins. For our sins. We say this all the time in church, but I think... So many times we say it because we've just said it for so long, right? Jesus died on the cross for our sins. Jesus died on the cross for our sins. And we've not for a long time slowed down enough to realize what that actually means. If you were to literally translate this from the original Greek, here's what it would mean. On behalf of us, or better translated, in place of us. Jesus gave himself in place of us. You deserve to die the death that Jesus died. You deserved to be abandoned by the Father. But because Jesus gave himself, he did it for you. This is what we call the atonement. He was our substitute. He took our place. He lived the life that we were supposed to live in perfect obedience and relationship with the Father. And then He gave His own life. He died the death that we were supposed to die so that we could have life. His death was voluntary. It was in our place He substituted Himself for us. And in doing that, He satisfied the wrath of God. God was justifiably angry at sin. And we are sinners. And we deserve the wrath of God. But Jesus, in giving His life, took our place. He took the wrath of God upon Himself for us. If you're a Christian today, you will not experience the wrath of God. 
because Jesus did for you. A couple of weeks ago, I made a passing comment to my wife. Something had happened, and uh, I said to Danielle, I said, this is the thing that when I was a younger man would have made me lose my temper. And my daughter was sitting there at the table, and she said, Dad, you lose your temper all the time. And Danielle said this. She said, no, Abigail, you've seen your dad frustrated, but you've never seen him lose his temper. But I have, and if you had, you'd be scared. I only saw my dad lose his temper one time with me growing up. It's a very memorable experience. I remember it distinctly. I'm sure it only lasted a couple of minutes, but it felt like a couple of months. I remember standing by a fire hydrant in front of our house after treating my mom terribly as a teenager. And her dad, my grandfather, saying to me out there in front of our house, if you treat your mom like that again, I will not treat you like my grandson. I'll treat you like a man that treated a woman the way that you just treated her. And I knew what that meant. It's a scary thing to fall under the wrath of a human being, but it's nothing like falling under the wrath of Almighty God. But if you are in Christ, you will never experience it because Jesus did for you. It was voluntary, it was in our place, but third, it was planned. Look with me, who gave himself, in verse 4, to rescue us from the present evil age, look, look at this phrase, according to the will of our God and Father. Don't miss this. According to the will of our God and Father. This was not something that happened on the spur of the moment. This was not Jesus being trapped in Jerusalem and the Father going, oh my lands, how am I going to get him out of there? Well, maybe we'll just let him die so he can come back to heaven sooner. This was not flying by the seat of his pants. This was planned from eternity past. That the gulf, that the chasm between this world, between humanity and God, would be bridged by Jesus. It was planned. You see this all over the Gospels, time and time again, particularly in the Gospel of Mark. You see Jesus actually predicting His own death. Why? Because He knew this is the Father's plan. In fact, there's a phrase in the Gospel where it says that Jesus set His face to Jerusalem. What does that mean? He knew that was where the Father's will would be finally accomplished. It was planned. God had been planning the rescue of His people since before the foundation of the earth. God the Father desired, wanted to give His only Son on our behalf. I felt a little bit like a wimp earlier this morning because I only have two children. 
I do not have six, but if you've ever met my son, you know he counts for 12 children. Um, But I cannot imagine any circumstance where I've wanted to give up my son. I don't think the father wanted it in the sense that he wanted to kill his only son. But he wanted it in that he knew that that was the only way for you and me in this world to be reconciled to him. And he desired that so much so that he spent thousands of years arranging the scene for Jesus to come onto. For Jesus to break into this world, live the life that we were supposed to live, and then die the death that we were supposed to die, and then be raised from the dead. It was planned. Fourth, it was a rescue operation. Look back at verse 4 and you'll see this. Who gave himself for our sins to rescue us. To rescue us. Some have thought that Jesus' death on the cross was primarily to set an example, right? Jesus gives, him life, gives His life. Isn't that wonderful example for how we should give our lives metaphorically for others? We should serve others. That is a part of why Jesus did it and may, maybe an application of what Jesus did. But it is not primarily what He was doing. What He was primarily doing was rescuing us. Previous to Jesus, we were drowning in sin. When we place our faith in Jesus, He rescues us. If you see a person drowning, throwing them a manual on swimming isn't going to do much good, is it? If you see a person drowning, what do you do? You either throw them the life raft with a rope tied to it, or you dive in to get them. Jesus did not throw us a manual for how to work our way to God. Jesus dove in and rescued us. Fifth, Jesus secures the Christian's grace and peace. This is where he starts in verse 3. Grace and peace. Yes, it's a greeting, but it's more than a greeting. There is a reason it came to be a Christian greeting. Grace and peace to you. From God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. It's Jesus' death on the cross that secures our ability to receive God's grace. We were out of the reach of God's grace before Jesus. Jesus is the one that reached out to us. He secured God's grace toward us. And if you have experienced God's grace, then you are guaranteed God's peace. That doesn't mean you're guaranteed peaceful circumstances. That means that you're guaranteed God's peace. The peace that passes all understanding. Why does it have to pass all understanding? Because if it was based on circumstances, then we would understand it. Oh, things are going well. Life is peaceful. But how is it that someone that knows Jesus can have peace in the storm? How is it that someone that follows Jesus 
knows peace because they've experienced God's grace. Because they know what it's like to be drowning and for God to reach out and rescue them through Jesus. It puts things in perspective for Christians. Sixth, it ensures the glory of God forever. This is what Jesus' death did. It ensured that the world would be restored to God again, and God would be glorified forever. He would be as weighty, as big, as majestic as He actually is in the eyes of all creation. This is why the Scriptures say that in the end, what will we do? All people will bow their knee and confess with their tongue that Jesus is Lord. It ensures the glory of God forever. This is where he ends, right? Verse 5, to whom be glory forever and ever. Amen. It ensures his glory. The cross of Christ is God's plan to salvation and his demonstration of immeasurable love for us. Jesus' death on the cross was God's idea. It was carried out by God the Son in obedience to the will of God the Father. Because of God's extravagant gift of Himself for us, He alone deserves and He alone will receive forever all the glory that He is due. He alone is glorious. We have a bad habit as human beings of glorifying other human beings. There is only one that is due the glory, and that's Jesus, because of what he did on the cross. Jesus' death on the cross was voluntary. It was in our place. It was planned. It was a rescue operation. It secured our grace and peace. It ensures that God will be glorified forever, but lastly, it demands a response. It is not enough to just look at it and say, woohoo. That's not what God wants. God doesn't want us to sit in pews on Sunday morning and look over and over and over and over again at how glorious He is and walk out those doors and think, yeah, He's glorious. It demands a response, it demands a life. Demands a change. And this is where Paul actually ends the letter. If you turn over to Galatians chapter 6, verse 14, here's where I want us to end. Here's what Paul says at the very end of this letter to the Galatians, after he's basically scolded them for six chapters about leaving the gospel and called with urgency for them to come back to the true gospel. This message, this news that what Jesus did on the cross is enough. But he ends by saying it demands a response. He ends by saying this in 6.14, May I never boast except in the cross of our Lord Jesus Christ. May I never boast Literally, may my life revolve around the cross of Jesus Christ. 
There is nothing else for our lives to revolve around. Think of the other things that you and others in our culture make their lives revolve around. Their children, children go off to school. Their academics, most people don't even go into the career that they studied for anymore. Their stuff, their stuff breaks down or they fall on hard times and they don't have as much stuff. You name it. Everything else that our life, we build our lives around, inevitably disappoints us. Why? Because it was never meant for our lives to revolve around those things. According to this letter, according to God's Word, our life was meant to revolve around the cross of Jesus Christ. What does that mean? That what Jesus did on the cross drives everything. It drives our gratitude. It drives our servanthood. It drives our kindness. It drives our love towards others. It drives our praise. It drives our singing towards God. It drives everything. It drives the way we spend our money. It drives the way we raise our kids. It drives everything. I love what the famous Dutch theologian Abraham Kuyper once said. He said, there is no square inch of this world or your life in which Jesus does not say mine. He wants it all. The cross of Jesus Christ demands it all because Jesus gave all of Himself. This is the way that Jesus said it from the cross. It is it is say it one more time. It is it's finished. You don't have to do anything else. Jesus did everything that was needed. But it does demand a response. It does demand our lives. I began by saying that oftentimes we're just moving so fast that we can't see what God is saying through His Word. We can't hear God. I love the way that the old hymn puts it. The chorus of Helen Limmel's 1922 hymn says this, Turn your eyes upon Jesus. Look full in His wonderful face. And the things of earth will grow strangely dim in the light of His glory and grace. Raise your hand if you know the song. Good. I stink at singing, so sing it with me. Turn your eyes upon Jesus, look full in His wonderful face, and the things of earth will grow strangely dim. In the light of His glory and grace.
us pray and we'll have our invitation.